right, so we are in chapter 5, and we're going to shift from the area of Galilee now to the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus is going to perform a sign, he's going to teach, he's going to face some criticism um, and reaction, negative reaction to this teaching that he, that he does. In chapter 5, we're going to begin to see a shift of the Jews from a reservation or hesitation in accepting Jesus as the Messiah to just an outright rejection. So we saw a little bit of this in chapter 2, 3. Um, chapter 4, it was more of pleasantries. We didn't see too much of the Jewish guys. Chapter 5, we see this outright rejection, and that's going to actually continue until chapter 7 when there's an arrest that um, is not successful, but they try to arrest Jesus. But that's kind of where we're headed here. So this is building, right? Um, we're going to be, I guess we'll start out in verse 1. I'm, I am going to read the entire story of this man, the first section. However, I will not get to read the whole chapter. So just know that I'm looking at the clock. I started late. It's a long chapter, and there's a lot here. So there are going to be things that I have to skip, but I'll try to make it clear. But we'll start out in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. All right, so as a reminder from John 3, 3, we see that a person may not see the kingdom of God unless what? Unless the Holy Spirit moves and opens their eyes and regenerates them. In this chapter, Jesus heals a lame man, and he does it purely out of grace. And our salvation is also purely out of grace. And I hope that you'll see some of the analogies from this to our own salvation. It's by grace alone. Um, This healing of the paralytic is going to bring Jesus into conflict once again with the Jews over one of their um, central religious observances, and that's the Sabbath. All right. So verse 1, we see that John once again is tying Um, his narrative to the feasts. Now, I told you that back in chapter 2, he will continue to do this. We don't know exactly what feast this is, but there's a feast that's occurring in Jerusalem. And he heads in verse 2 
to Bethesda, to a pool near Bethesda, which literally means mercy. So pool of mercy, and it's near the Sheep Gate. Um, The Sheep Gate, if you want to look this up later, is discussed in Nehemiah 3 and 12. You'll remember that Nehemiah was the man brought back from Persia with the exiles who rebuilt the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And the Sheep Gate was a small opening um, that was in the north wall of the city, now, this should give you chills when I explain all this. That was actually, it was a little opening where the animals that were being brought in for sacrifice to the temple, they came through that opening. So we have the Passover lamb, Jesus, arriving at the pool of mercy near the sheep gate. I think that's beautiful imagery. Once you pick up those things, you see what John is doing with imagery again, if you're aware of what that imagery means. All right, so verse 3, there are a multitude, or there is a multitude, of disabled people who've gathered here. You may have noticed if you skim down to the bottom of your page, or maybe you notice that it goes from verse 3 to verse 5. You may see that. Verse 4 is missing. Verse 4 is not in the earliest, it's not in any of the earliest manuscripts that we have. So I think it's probably proper um, and good that we leave it out. You'll see in just a minute, in a little while, why those manuscripts are so accurate. I'll explain that in a little bit. But I think it's good that we leave out verse 4. However, if you skip down to verse 7, do you remember the man talks about the stirring? So apparently, there was some sort of accepted belief among the people that there was some sort of stirring that occurred. Is that important to the story, how that happened? No, that has, um, it's not essential for us. All right, so verse 5, we see that this man has been paralyzed for 38 years. We don't know how old he is, but we know that he's at least 38. Um, At this time, people maybe didn't even live to be 38 years old. So he has been disabled, paralyzed for longer than many people even lived at this day and time. We see in verse 6 that Jesus, let me just read that again. When Jesus saw him lying there, so he sees him. And knew that he had already been there a long time. So we see, you see the compassion here? Do you see that, number one, Jesus sees him. Jesus goes toward the needy people, not the self-righteous people. Um, Jesus sees him out of this multitude and knows, because he knows everything, that he's been there a long time already. That's compassion that's coming out here. Um, And also, I think that, think about, there's all these other disabled people there So I think we can also look at the fact that sovereign initiative lies with Jesus. It's his choice who he goes to. And I think we see that in this passage. There were lots of other people here that weren't healed and that he didn't talk to. All right, so he comes, we come down to um, the end of verse 6. And he asks what I think is an unusual question. um, Do you want to be healed? And it's literally, or another translation is, do you want to be made whole? Hmm. How many times have we already seen Jesus in these personal encounters that he has with people? He asks questions that he already knows the answer to, and so it seems unusual to us. And what, again, I know Paula explained this, what's the purpose of this? He's bringing out what's already in the person's heart. He's, he already knows. He's revealing what's in their heart. And he's going to do this again here. And so just like he knows this man's heart, he knows us perfectly as well, which can be scary. So verse 7, the man jumps up and shouts, yes. Right? 
No, I guess he couldn't jump up anyways, but he does, he's not enthusiastic. I don't know if you know, the, if you're familiar with the blind man in John 9. I don't know who's teaching that chapter. It's not me, but that's second semester. The, the man in John 9 is much more endearing for, to me for some reason. But here, he just, he starts explaining his tragic situation. Um, clearly, from what he says, he cannot help himself. He is at the mercy of Jesus, just like we are. Unless the Spirit of God moves, it ain't happening, right? We are at his mercy. This man also clearly cannot see who this is in front of him. He does not see, from John 3, 3, what's happening here. Um, Verse 8, Jesus tells him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And the man does so immediately. He is fully and completely and immediately healed. 38, let that sink in for a minute. 38 years of being paralyzed, and he's immediately healed. He rolls up his mat, and he walks away. Um, Then we're rejoicing in that, and we look at the end of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. And you're like, ah, Jesus, are you trying to get yourself killed? What are you doing? And the answer is, yes, he is. For us but for his glory as well. So let's, we've seen the sign. We're going to look to the glory that's behind the sign. We don't want to just see the sign. We want to see what's behind it. Verse 10, here come the Jews. They show up on the scene. They ask the man questions. They remind him that it's unlawful, unlawful for him to take up his bed on the Sabbath. Just a little bit of background. You know that, that the Jews added many laws to God's word. In fact, you know, it wasn't just the Exodus 20 about the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath, they actually came up with 39 new categories to define work. And one of them is that you can't carry anything on the Sabbath. Um, obviously, they're, they're solely focused on outward, outward works and not what's in the heart. Um, I think it's ironic if they're focused on the outside... If they're here at this pool on this particular day, most likely in the last 38 years, they have been there. And this man was probably there. And even if they didn't take the time to get to know his name, I'm sure that they recognized his face. And yet, they don't even make any mention at all of this miraculous healing that has just taken place. All they are focused on is the fact that he is carrying his mat. You know, I think... For us, the application there is, by God's grace, may we not be religious people who think that we see what's most important, that we know what's most important, um, that we have the corner of the market on the things that are most important to do and not do. All right, so the man here, he, he just blames it on Jesus. He said, oh, that man, he didn't know his name, but the man that told me to, you know, that man that healed me, he told me to do it. He just kind of passes the blame. Um, Jesus is gone, but in verse 14, he shows up again. So he's not going to neglect the man's spiritual state. That's not the purpose, is for him just to go around physically healing people. Now he's going to look at his spiritual state. So when you get to 14, let's just look at that for a minute. He says, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now let's just break this down just a little bit. We probably all, I hope that we all know um, in Scripture that it's very clear that not all disease is a consequence of sin. Okay? We're, uh, hopefully everyone's clear on that. 
However, read that statement again. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Do you see that John is obviously tying a specific sin to this man's um, situation? Sin no more, and that's a so that, or in order that, nothing worse may happen to you. So apparently for this man, there was a specific sin tied to this. However, in totality of scripture, it's not always that way. Um, Let's flip for just a minute to Matthew. And let's think about the something worse that he discusses here. Matthew 10, and we'll look at verse 28. So for those who are unbelievers... Nothing, everything that they do is sin. That's all that they can do is sin. So Matthew 10, verse 28. Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Wow, you don't hear that kind of preaching too often, do you? Let's read that last part again. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So if it's not something on this earth, that's the something worse, it's the final judgment. And in reality, for unbelievers, whether you're in a suffering situation, there will be a final judgment for an unbeliever. And you should fear the one who can destroy soul and body in hell. And it's only by God's grace that we are removed from that as a believer. Um, One more thing about this situation here. Healing for this group of people was the exception. Do you see that? The healing is the exception. There was a multitude of people here who were disabled. So this is, in the context of the universe, healing is the exception. We believe and we pray for miracles, but that's the exception to the rule. We see that Jesus does not heal, but just one person right here at this pool. And why? Well, the main reason, the main, the main focus here is not physical healing, And even for us, our focus should not be physical healing. But yet, in our suffering and in our brokenness, to see him. And when we see him, to pursue holiness. Um, And that's only by his power. And if his spirit moves, that's the only way that it can happen. That we can actually be holy and pursue holiness is by the the movement of his spirit. All right, so verses uh, 15 and 16. We'll wrap up this little section here. The man tells the Jews who did it. Um, Again, his confession is different from the guy in John 9, so you can compare that later. But we're also told in these uh, verses here that we see this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, for doing these things on the Sabbath. Um, John says, if you look in verse 16, he says, these things. So apparently there were other things. This was not the only thing that Jesus had been doing on the Sabbath. He uses the word, they're plural, these things. Um, And then 17, and this is where we'll stop for just a second. Jesus makes an interesting statement. It says, Jesus answered them, and however, there were no askers of questions, right? No one asks a question here. And this, in the Greek, this actually has legal overtones to it. Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I am working. All right, so what's Jesus saying? Um, On the Sabbath, you weren't allowed to do work. And in scripture, that really has to do with your customary employment. It's not necessarily those 39 categories of work that they had come up with. 
So let's go back to creation. You have the six days of creation, and God rested. Hmm, how does that work? How does God rest? Does that mean that for the seventh day, God, like, which is now still, right? God's just doing nothing? Can that be right? So is God a lawbreaker then? Do y'all get what I'm saying here? Like, this is where you have to start reasoning. What does Jesus mean? My father is working until now. He's saying my father works on the Sabbath because, and actually, these, historically, these Jewish leaders were okay with saying, God is not a lawbreaker, so he does continue working and keep the universe running, even on the Sabbath. He keeps the universe running. They were okay with that. So then what is Jesus saying? And I am working. So he's saying, if you justify God's working on the Sabbath, then guess what? You have to justify me too. And they didn't like that very much. So this is where things start to fall apart. Um, a lot of wrath is going to start to come out, come out as we finish. I want to read a quote here, just because I thought it was good. I don't even remember. I didn't write down who it was. But as we start in verse 18, 19 or so, you have that one statement in 17, and the rest of the chapter, Jesus is just going to give it to him. All right? And here's what he says. Jesus was no modern-day postmodern. Those are the people who say there's no truth. Everything's relative. What's good for you works for you. What's good for me works for me. Mm -mm. He did not tone down the words of truth, so not to offend someone's understanding of who he was or is. Rather, he added to it. So he's going to take the statement in 17 and then add a whole lot more to what he's just said. All right, so in um, 18, we kind of covered, they were upset not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was saying he was equal with God. That was really the main issue here. In 19, I'm going to start skipping verses here, all right? I can't read all of this. I'm looking at the clock. Um, verse 19, basically whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Okay, they are, there's, a, there's an essential union between the two of them. He's never out of step with the Father. Then you skip down to verse 22. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. So there seems to be this reciprocity here between the two of them. Um, and why is this? Let's look at verse 23. Why does the Father give all judgment to the Son? Verse 23 starts with that. That's another so that or in order that. So why? In order that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And so in order to honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Um, so what's the implication for us as we're thinking about how does this apply? What does this mean for us? You can think of other denominations, other religions, where, or even just irreligious people where you think... Um, do they honor God? Is that, are they truly, I mean, maybe they are. Like, it's a different God. I mean, I don't know. It's the same God, or maybe they are honoring God. Here's, here's your question, here's, or here's the answer to that. Here's how you figure that out. Do they honor Jesus for who he really is? That's what this scripture says right here. Um, do they see him as the divine son of God? Divine, divine. He's deity, because that's, there's one sect in particular I'm thinking of. Um, the Messiah the crucified and risen Lord, the Lord, in, uh, the Lord of the universe, the judge of the universe. Do they honor Jesus as who he really is? And, of course, if they don't, then Jesus' own words here tell us that they don't honor God. So that's your question. Now, 
Um, Verse 24, let's look at that. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So, if we do hear and believe, then what do we have? It says in the first part, eternal life. And it says he has it, like he already has it. So that means it's a present reality already for us that we have eternal life. And the second part, he does not come into judgment. Whew, you know that final judgment we talked about earlier? He does not come into judgment. Why is that? Because there's already one that's been judged. If you're trusting in that one, he's already taken the judgment. So he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let that sink in. You have already, if you're trusting in that one that took the judgment for you, you have already passed from death to life. Ephesians tells us that we're already seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. What does that mean? I don't know. But it sounds pretty cool and encouraging to me. I've passed from death to life, and I don't have to go through the final judgment. That's not for me, because I'm trusting in the one that that's already happened to Very comforting words. All right, verse 25, and I feel like I want to explain a little bit on these because, you know, that whole justification by faith thing, I feel like that comes up in this paragraph right here. So let's talk about that for just a minute. Let me just read it. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All right, so in verse 25, you have two different verbs here. An hour is coming and an hour is now here. So we're going to start with the is now here and then we'll come back to the is coming. So an hour is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So that's now. I interpret this as a spiritual awakening in verse 24. The is now here, spiritually dead people will be awakened by God's Spirit and as it says, will live. So that's you, if you've been awakened to trust, believe, honor Christ as who he really is, that's you. All right, now let's look at the is coming. So that part, you've got to skip down to verse 28. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. We'll pause there for just a second. All right, that means... If he doesn't come back before I die, I'm going to be dead in the tomb, right? And then I'm going to be, I'm going to come out. And that means all of you are going to be dead in the tomb. We're going to come out. A bodily resurrection for me, for you, for Osama bin Laden, Robin Williams, Martin Luther, everyone. From the history of time. Sounds a little weird, right? We're going to come out bodily. And then let's look at what happens. The end of that verse. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Now, those who have done good. Who are those who have done good? 
All right, if you have to look back up to verse 24. He says in 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Those are the ones who've done good. Now, does that mean that believing is a work? If we had time, we'd go over to John 15, where the pastor was at the beginning of that chapter, where he was on Sunday, I guess. The beginning of that chapter says that those who abide in Christ, you know, I'm, I'm the, the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me will bear much fruit. So as you believe and abide in Christ, what happens? You bear much fruit. You do good. Not because you, like the believing itself is not the doing good. But the doing good is the evidence of what's happened. So there's the root and the shoot, right? So this part in 29, um, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, I'm trying to hurry and I can't talk, um, that's simply the good works they've done as evidence of the belief and the transformation that's taken place. And then the second part, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So they will face the final judgment, those who are unbelievers. And all they can do is evil and sin because they are not believers. All right. Last section here, verse 30. Um, Got to go fast. Verse 30 is really kind of its own thing here, but his judgment is just. That's the synopsis of that. This last part, you're going to get four testimonies that Jesus describes. Um, the first one is John the Baptist. Then he'll talk about his, how his own works testify. And then he'll talk about the Father and then Moses, or Scripture itself. With John the Baptist, he asked the Jews to recall the time when they were okay with listening to what John had to say. But unfortunately, nothing happened. There was no transformation Um, They did not truly see Jesus as the one that John the Baptist was announcing. All right, secondly, if you skip down just a little bit to verse uh, 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So here's something greater. And he says, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So now it's about Jesus' own works. So these are the signs that we've already seen, and it's the future signs, and especially that work of redemption at the cross. Those are the works that he's talking about that bear witness of him. These are not just special human action. These are divine miracles and signs that are being performed. All right, then thirdly, he's going to draw their attention to the Father himself. And really, he doesn't give specific um, or explicit instructions and definitions of what he means by what the Father has done. However, I think it's a general reference to all of the Father's works and probably Scripture itself, which he's about to talk about. All right, the last thing that we're going to spend time on here is the, the Scripture itself. So he says in verse 39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. All right, so I thought this was interesting when I came across this explanation. This verse right here just seems a little odd. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Um, The Pharisees regarded scripture almost with a superstitious type of belief. Um, they, They actually thought there was some sort of power in the parchment and the letters, like the Hebrew letters themselves. Um, like that there was actually life. If they studied enough, if they memorized enough, they read enough, 
there was life just that was imparted to them by just doing that, something magical about the paper itself. So some of the things I found, and just listen to this for a second, they actually, they had numerical equivalents for every Hebrew letter, which means that every Hebrew word had a numerical equivalent, which meant that every line had a numerical, it was a mathematical equation, the whole line was a mathematical equation. They would go back and mark the center letter of every line and the center of every book. It was, it was very superstitious the way that they did this. As they copied the manuscripts, they were only allowed to copy, you know, if it's a T, T, one letter at a time, and then go back to the original source text and get the next letter. They were, you know, can you imagine how long it took for them to copy the Old Testament? But that's, they saw something in the paper and the letters itself. But they missed the whole point. All of that meticulous work. And they missed it letter by letter. Which is bad for them. But it's kind of good for us. Why is that? Does that mean it's, it was copied really well? So when I say we're going to leave out that verse 4 from the beginning of the chapter. Because it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. It wasn't in there. So... That was very well copied, very meticulously copied, and we're going to leave that verse out. Letter by letter took them a long time. Um, Obviously, there was a mistake in their faith and the things that they saw as important. Um, I think that, in fact, if you look in verse 39, there's actually a technical word. You search the scriptures. Um, It's Irenaeo diligently searching. It's actually a technical word for the scribes who labored over letter by letter by letter. It's a word that comes from the Hebrew. Um, And like I said, unfortunately, they didn't get beyond the paper and the ink to what the true meaning was. Um, Now, Jesus does not, and that's, if you notice, he says, and in verse 39, the end of it, and it is they that bear witness about me. So he does not outright Um, dispute the fact that the Old Testament bears witness of him. That's not what he's doing, but he's trying to show them that you're missing the point in the way that you're looking at the scriptures, that these scriptures do direct us to him. All right, so 41 to 44, let me just kind of give you the gist of that right there. These Pharisees, I'll, I'll read 41. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. So they don't have the word they don't have life, and they don't have the love of God within them. That's kind of the gist of those three or four verses there. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? I think that's kind of the thrust of what he's saying here. You're seeking glory all around you rather than the glory that comes only from God. All right, lastly, verses 45 to 47 Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So ultimately, he says, Moses is your own accuser. The thing that you hold so dearly to the Old Testament, he's the one that ultimately accuses you. Um, If they believed in Moses, they would have believed him. And actually, um, just keep in mind, when, when he says Moses, he's referring to 
the Old Testament. And if you remember way back in Genesis, when we looked at the, uh, Luke chapter 24, the road to Emmaus, it says he opened Moses, beginning with Moses and the prophets. Anytime you see that reference in scripture, that's Old Testament books. It's the writings of Moses um, and then the prophets if it says that. So in closing, just kind of to summarize, we saw another sign. We kind of peeled back the layers to find the glory that's behind the sign because we don't want to just see the sign. What's the purpose of seeing the glory in the passage? That goes back to our memory verse. To see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing this thing, these things that we would have life in his name, eternal life. We saw in verse 44 here, what is the barrier to that belief? Seeking praise from men. That's the barrier that he points out here. When we find ourselves satisfied in him and seeking his glory, we'll find out this doesn't satisfy what's in our thirsty souls. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for a place and a time and the ability to read and the ability to think clearly. And Lord, so many things, health and so many things that are, are reasons that we're even able to be here this morning, God. We thank you for giving us those things. Lord, most importantly, we just thank you that for most of us probably in this room, you have uh, opened our eyes. Your spirit has come and given us life. Lord, I pray that if there are any that have not received life from you, in the name of Jesus, I do just pray that you would let your spirit move, whether it's this morning or this week, um, use us, Lord, to take your message to others. And would you just open eyes and hearts to receive it? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.